What's going on, everyone? Andrew here with another episode of The Interested Eater. I hope everyone had a good holidays. I hope everyone had a good new year and happy new year to everyone. I had the recent pleasure of sitting down with Mike Evans, who's the chef de cuisine of Kabuki Sushi's Sand Lake location here in Orlando. If his name sounds familiar, this is our second time we sat down. First time was to get to know him a little bit better. This go round through a couple messages we had back and forth, was to discuss mental health awareness in the restaurant industry. This episode itself is a little bit on the longer side, and I don't want to ramble on on my intro, but I do get into why it was that I wanted to discuss this with Mike right at the beginning, so I don't feel I really need to preface anything. I do apologize in advance if it seems like I'm rambling on with any of my questions or statements, but hopefully you can see where I started with a statement and ended with a question. You see how that all kind of ties together and continues on this conversation. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Mike on mental health awareness in the restaurant industry. Mike, how's it going? It's going. How are you? Good. Round two. Round two. (laughs) So I appreciate you sitting down with me, and we had spoken off the air, and once we were done with the first interview, you had followed up, and you said, you know what, there's a lot of other topics in the world of restaurants and the industry itself that if you ever want to talk about them in the future, um, feel free to reach out to me, and and we we can get something scheduled and in place. And not that long ago, probably about like a month ago, I had seen this post on Instagram and it was about a, it was accumulation of several videos, about 40 minutes long. And if anyone wants the link, you can always just shoot me a DM and I'm happy to send it to you. But it was talking about mental health in the restaurant industry. And it was really eye opening to me because for someone who I look up to in Anthony Bourdain, and we know we obviously lost him about 18 months ago, he had such an impact, but I feel he also had an impact on awareness and support for mental health in the restaurant industry. So I had reached out to you, said, hey, listen, this had a pretty significant impact on me. I would love to know more about it. I want to hear firsthand, since I'm speaking from outside the industry and, and learning about this from outside the industry, and I, w- I want to hear your side of the things, hear what hear what your concerns are, hear what what you feel is changing in the industry, and um, here we are now sitting down. So you want to take a, a brief little moment first to kind of talk about some resources that people may have, so floor is yours. Awesome, thank you. Uh, very happy to do this. So um, if anybody, if you guys are ever feeling down, you feel like you don't matter, you're feeling insignificant, you're feeling like you can't go on, here's a couple of resources to help you guys. Um, and then after this, if you even after you, know, you, you might want to stop the podcast, to be able to call these numbers. First is the National Suicide Hotline. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. And if talking isn't your thing and you feel more comfortable with texting, you also have the Crisis Hotline. That number, and you text to 741-741. You have trained counselors there standby to help take you from where you are to where you need to be. Perfect. So, uh, and then obviously pass it along to anyone else. You, you may feel, may, may seem a little off, may seem, you know, unsteady. Give them those resources. I think the biggest thing, too, is um, people want to be heard, and sometimes just talking to them can go a long way as well. I wanted to get into this, uh, this, this topic on mental health, and it was surprising to me, not that necessarily it's just something that people who are making kind of like the lower wages may be struggling, because we all deal with it. We have to pay bills. We have to you know, get our life in order. There's, there's, life happens, and sometimes that means that you know, we may have to, um, to adjust our schedule and adjust our life, and it can impact things. We all deal with at times some form of anxiety, um, but there was a significant amount of people that were um, talked to in this 
video um, from the top down. Owners, GMs, executive chefs, iron chefs were even on there that were talking about their mental health struggles. So let's, I'll start things off with you. Can you talk to me about kind of what those concerns are in the mental health industry, what you've been dealing with over these years since you've been in the kitchen? Yeah, so one of the things is uh, now is a lot of people, customers and chefs too, and everyone alike, because everyone really wants to know where their food comes from, but not a lot of people really want to know where, or really even care to know where the person who serves your food or who has cooked your food is coming from and things, and that's that's what people, that's, it's just what's very important. Um, and then with mental health now, and, and, and the restaurant industry has always been one of those macho, macho industries where we kind of just have to be quiet, you kind of take it on the chin, and you just put your head down and keep going, but that's changing more and more in the restaurants with people becoming I guess more woke is actually the phrase they use for that and so it's the, it's the elephant in the room that only really half people half the people are really going to acknowledge to understand to say hey I do have an issue I need help and things then you have the other half you know who wants to acknowledge it but they really don't want to look weak in front of everyone else you know it's that that's that macho mentality and that that's what needs to change and that's what has been changing over time and and for me personally um, going from restaurant manager to going to be in a cook. So I went from two different worlds, staying within the same world. And a lot of challenges there. When I was uh, got out of college, I was working for a small company and I became a uh, manager with them. And it was completely different when I was a cook. So when I became management, there was a lot more, obviously I had managerial responsibilities and things, but it was always labor, labor, labor. That was the one thing that really got me. It had to be this percentage or lower. And if it wasn't, you got that phone call at 7 a.m. the next morning of, from your boss, like, why, why did we not do this? You know, why didn't we catch this fast enough and things? And you lose a lot of sleep over things like that. And it, and it really hurts. So that's why, you know, I got out of that. It was just, it was too much at the time. You know, I was 24 years old. So this was 10 years ago. And I decided to go to culinary school because I liked cooking a lot more. And I figured, okay, I can be in, you know, an environment where I have less responsibilities to start off with, where my job is just to prep my station and cook and run service and clean. And so I wanted to work for the best places and I did. And then being in there at those times, I didn't recognize like mental health, you know, 10 years ago wasn't something that was talked about. So it wasn't something that we thought about either. And you see these things happening in the kitchens. Like I've seen people ran out of kitchens. I've seen the chef freak out in front of guests and things where they're running people out of the kitchens. I've seen people doing drugs in kitchens. They then offer to me as well. You know, there's, you make a lot of decisions when you're sitting there staring at a handful of Adderall or maybe even possibly a line of cocaine trying to decide, should I do this so I can keep up with everybody else? And for me, that was definitely a no. And so I got myself out of those situations and found more positive uh, places to be, which is how I got to where I am today, which was great, getting out of the yelling and screaming environment. And a lot of chefs now are seeing that. So in that video, um, a lot of those chefs, you know, they were just in bad places. Uh, Chris Constantino, uh, who owns the Costco restaurant, great chef great guy he does a lot of work with a uh, chef cycle which is something i'm getting into they raise money for no kids hungry they do this three day 300 mile ride with all other chefs and people from the food industry which is great mm -hmm. uh, and he even says in there you know he just he was just in such a bad place it was a chemical imbalance and sometimes people have that it's not just that it's just maybe they can't produce the serotonin levels and things you know that that happy that happy drug in your brain that helps you out mm -hmm. um and then just, you know, the people who deal with a lot more things are dealing with not just mental abuse, physical abuse as well. And uh, God forbid, sexual abuse that does happen as well in the industry. That's actually one of the big things. And the Me Too movement has been a big thing with helping fight back against that, giving people a place to talk and bring it out, which has been great. Um, so one of the bigger things, um, coping. A lot of people have issues with coping, and that's 
where uh, addiction topic comes in and uh, people it was for the same for me too was the way to cope for me was drinking and I wasn't going out and getting obliterated but there were times when I was coming home from work that I should have gotten a DUI you know three or four different times and then once you've done that a couple of times and you've gotten very very lucky uh, you kind of realize what's happening you kind of have to slow down a little bit so luckily for me I was able to uh, notice that but there are some people who can't get away with that and even in that that little 40 minute video there's a chef who talks about you know that's just to shut up the voices in his head he would drink himself into oblivion basically until they got quiet mm -hmm. and we all know that's not healthy and a lot of a lot of chefs now there's a lot of sober chefs who weren't sober before but are now sober they're getting healthier and things so finding those positive mechanisms to help you cope whether it's talking with someone seeking professional help maybe finding a less stressful environment or finding something that makes you really happy um, like maybe it might be cycling maybe it might be working out maybe it might be just like for me going out working in my garden taking my dogs for a walk uh, working on some kind of project, something for my house. I, I think those are incredibly important things to do. And uh, maybe writing for some people or singing musical instruments, something, you know, find something that makes you happy and use that to help you cope. And then if you can't uh, cope using that, then maybe it's time to maybe th seek professional help. And there is no shame in that if you do need that kind of help. If it, you know, because remember, like we said, everybody matters. It doesn't matter how, you know, how big your problem is or how small. It, you know you matter yeah there was mention on these videos but <clears throat> also in articles I've seen too on the notion of those who work in the kitchen are seen as the outsiders the specific term was given was band of misfit toys and it makes sense because sometimes there are people who aren't suited for front of house they're not suited for corporate life and you know what maybe they maybe they also just have a unique skill that they can bring which is cooking which is working with uh, with a team working at a, at a high pace and high intensity they can deal with stress and that's not always for everyone and it's kind of a it's a unique environment where you're like let me add as much stress as possible add in high temperatures in the kitchen constantly moving around you have all these people surrounding you where then you go home and then sometimes it is just yourself and you're like okay I guess this is the point at which I can kind of calm down and um, go back to quote-unquote normalcy what is your take on that sense of the kitchen being filled with those outsiders? It's always, uh, my, my uh, thing is I've always had a great group. I've always found great groups of friends and things. And you find, like I said, the Island of Misfit Toys and things. You always get different types of people. You have all different types of backgrounds, ethnicity, creeds, religions, and things like that. And you learn to work together because if you, because not one person can run the kitchen, not one person can run a restaurant. You know, you need everybody to work in sync with each other to make that happen. And so they, they, you were saying there's maybe some people aren't suited to wear suits and things like that. I wasn't. I thought I was in the beginning in my early 20s when I was going to college and things like that. And I found out it realistically wasn't for me. I don't want to sit there from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday in an office, punching numbers on a calculator or a keyboard or whatever it was I was looking to do at the time. And so the kitchens were always suited. I started in hospitality at McDonald's when I was 16. And I fell in love with it. It was fun. I enjoyed it. You know, and... It just kind of went from there, and and uh, yeah, so but definitely with um, you, you just meet so many different types of people and things, yeah. and you you create synergies and you cre can create lifelong friendships and things. And I've created a lot of friendships working in kitchens and things like that. That you know you get people when you're in the up, especially when you're in the upper ranks and things, and they're they look up to you and they're like, hey, the one you open a restaurant, let me know. I want to come work for you when you do that and things like that. And it makes you feel really really good. But it also means you have a family outside of your regular family. And it's also a place for people who don't have anybody as well. They go in there and they know they're going to be around people all the time and they're going to find 
somebody they're going to connect with and they're going to create that family. Like right now, obviously, I see my staff in my kitchen more at work than I see anything else. Yeah. You know, my house now with my dogs, you know, it's just kind of like a place I go to sleep and I have that day off just to work and clean and keep that, you know, maintenance on the house and things and, and do some, you know, some wind down time. Do you think that outsider, uh, if we want to call it mentality, gives those who work in the kitchen almost like a chip on their shoulder type of feel when it comes to comparing themselves to those who are not in the industry? I think it can. I think it depends on where you work. I think it depends on the type of personality you are that you have. And I also think it depends on your skill level. Um, that was the case for me. Being higher skilled in things, I did have that chip on my shoulder for a while. And then, especially coming out of culinary school, you know, they say you get out of college, you know, now you know everything. Mm -hmm. And then you get humbled. Yeah. Pretty hard sometimes, I you bet. know, by somebody who's just either better than you or just, you know, older and bigger than you at that point. And they're just like, yo, stop. Yeah. You had mentioned culinary school. Um, obviously, those outside influences can have an impact as well. And for a lot of people, you know, we deal with debt. Mm -hmm. student loans, you know, any trying to make ends meet just to kind of pay the bills. You know, we at times may not understand too that you may come in with all this education, but still may be starting off making 10, 11 bucks an hour. Talk me through that. Talk me how that makes you feel, how that makes your team feel. I was very lucky uh, going to CIA and I had my first um, culinary instructor, my first chef, he was the chef, one of the chefs, he was the opening saucier for Le Bernardin in New York, and he worked with a couple of the uh, instructors there as well. You know, these were legends in the industry that knew Bourdain and things like that. These guys had worked together at some point in their careers. And the first thing he told us on our first day in class was, listen, you know, you're paying all this money, you're spending all this time and incurring all this debt to go and probably make anywhere from, you know, you start off making 10 to 12 and making probably no more than $18 an hour for the rest of your life as a line cook and few of you will make it to sous chefs even fewer will make it to executive chefs and even smaller percentages will own your own place one day you know and i thought that was really awesome that he said that up front because a lot of culinary schools uh one that's not in orlando and that's not around anymore made a lot of promises like basically we're over promising and under delivering yeah. and that's what sent them under um and i and i think that was that was a very bad mistake on their part you know you're charging you know a semester at the cia can be like eight thousand dollars you know, you're charging that and you're not going to be honest with people. That can definitely mess with you. And then it, it comes down to passion versus pay. Some people are okay with, and you can make ends meet and things making 10 to 12 bucks an hour, maybe working two jobs and things because you love what you do. Um, and I think that's what scared a lot of people too as well, is I'm going to spend all this money and not make any of it back and I'm going to be stuck paying student loans for the rest of my life, you know, death taxes and student loans, you know, you, they pass on, you know, you, you don't, Good those. And I was very fortunate myself that I didn't have to incur as much debt as some of them did, and I was able to pay mine off. But then again, you know, I was dropping $500 a month uh, right out of school, saving that money just every single day to chip away at this $20,000 loan. And some of them had, you know, I had friends that had three, four times that amount, maybe even five times, depending if they did the bachelor's program. It's, it's a lot of money, and trying to pay that off, it's, it could take a toll on you trying to figure it out because you've got other bills to pay because now you have to prioritize okay, well, I have to pay the student loans if I don't pay on it. Even if I get a deference on it for six months, I'm still going to get hit with interest, and that's what hurts. Yeah. You borrow this money, and then you end up paying three times the amount back sometimes. Exactly. And that, that just hurts. That's your money. That's your hard-earned money right there. And now you're like, okay, well, I can't buy the latest cell phone. I can't have a TV, or I have to eat family meal all the time. Like when I first bought my house, I was making 13 bucks an hour because I couldn't find a place to live because 
it cost more. It was actually going to cost me more an apartment by myself than my mortgage is now. And I, my refrigerator was full of family meals. I couldn't eat at one point. Yeah. And it's rough. It really, it really, really is. Talk me through with a place like uh, Kabuki in that in that kitchen. If you give me like at least maybe like a percentage or something like that of how many people did go to culinary school. Uh, we're currently what we have right now in the entire company, mostly I think it's just, I know I'm the only one who went to CIA mm-hmm. out of everybody and I have another one of my chefs, he did the Valencia program. Uh, another one I think did culinary school in the Philippines and he worked for a lot of good places and others and then uh, my pastry chef who I'm pushing towards baking in pastry school because she has a lot of talent, she's really awesome and I want her to learn, I want her career to grow in things in order for her to grow. You could work in all these best places, but if you don't get the foundation you need, you're just picking up techniques, and if you don't know how to tie your techniques together, then you're gonna be stuck for a while. Yeah. I can only imagine how competitive the kitchen is as, as well, because everyone's trying to get to that next pay scale or title within the kitchen, and I've worked in industries that, I'll be honest, have that toxic environment where mm-hmm. they're only looking out for number one. Do you still see that competitiveness in the kitchen? Does that exist? Has it changed over the years? I think it really depends on where you're working, to be honest with you. Um, within where I'm at now, um, my environment that I I have shaped uh, at, on, on my location is that I don't make everybody. I don't make people call me chef. They call me chef because out of respect, you know, I'm Mike. Regardless, at the end of the day, the only thing I don't like being called a chef, Mike, because in in the industry, chef Mike is the microwave, and I'm much more than a microwave. And we do have one of those in the kitchen too, that we use for certain things. But yeah, it, there's always going to be that competitiveness. Everybody wants to be the best. Everybody wants to get that level. Everybody wants, you know, a lot of the up-and-coming chefs, they all want to be the next Rene Redzepi. They want to be a David Chang. They want to be Christina Tosi. They want to be all these chefs they see that are doing well. Not so much as, I think, Food Network. A lot of them don't want to be those Food Network chefs anymore. Um, but they want to be the other chefs that are in these restaurants that are just now, get, they're now getting recognition. And they're finding out about new restaurants. And they, you know, everybody wants to be on top. That's the thing. Everybody wants to be number one. Yeah. And that's, that, there's nothing wrong with having that mentality at all. But w- at what cost are you willing to pay to get there? Yeah. And that, that's, that, that's been where the, all those problems sprang from. But there's also a lot of good that's come out of it. So now that we're recognizing it, a lot of restaurants are doing things like going to three and four day work weeks. They have programs set up to have people come in and talk to you or you might get a paid vacation or they might help you pay for counseling, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I've been listening to a lot of uh, podcasts that do have that and these chefs are doing that and creating these awesome work environments. Like even one chef has three employees he's given a piece of his restaurant to, so now they own it. Yeah, I've heard of like co-ops too. I think it's out, a lot of them are out on the West Coast, but they're talking about like co-op and you kind of have to buy in and, and you will you will make significantly more, but giving them that, that small percentage of ownership I think that, that shows like, hey, you're responsible for it and everyone else holds the same value. Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm kind of interested to know a little bit more about too is in your role um, as a chef de cuisine in a leadership role like that, are you, are you able to work on talent development or is that, is that still kind of tough because of how time consuming being in the kitchen is? What I always tell people with time is, yes, we do have, like, time is a concept, but at the end of the day, time is something you have to make. Mm-hmm. We have all the time in the world to do the things we want to do. I think if you think you're too busy to do things, I don't think you're trying hard enough at that point. Uh, so my whole job is not, isn't just, 
you know, making sure my kitchen runs as efficiently, not making, making sure my orders are tight, coming up with new dishes and things, but developing my staff is the most important thing to me because I want them to be better. I gave, I made them a promise. I said, under me, I said, there's gonna be times you guys are gonna love me and there's gonna be times you guys are going to absolutely hate me, but you know what, by the time you are done here, however long you are with me, whether it's three months or three years, you're gonna be significantly better than what you are and I want you guys, I would really like to get you guys to the point where you guys can go on to management positions, to those sous chefs positions, you know, by me showing you guys, by leading by example, by talking to you, by walking you through how, how I do ordering and why I do it that way, why food costing is important, how to put together dishes um, and concepts and, you know, how to do, just how to do all these things. So the development is the most important part, I think, of any chef. That's what makes a chef a chef yep. on that level is not just being a good cook and not just being a great creator or being a great operator. It's being a teacher and a mentor. And those, those two I take very seriously. Definitely. And, yeah, because I, I think that there's that notion, too, from the outside. And it did highlight that on the video, too, of um, some people feeling like they need to be there 70 to 90, 90 hours a week. And for any of us from the outside, we're like, that's like two, two and a half work weeks. That, that seems absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But there is that sense of ownership as well. But like you said, it's, it's a matter of finding that time and whether or not it could be, you know, an hour or it could just be like a couple minutes, like... I think regardless, we as human beings, we, we do want to talk about ourselves. We do want to feel like we're being heard. And I think that that's something that I, I can tell just from our couple interactions together that you, I think you have that sense of, you know, understanding there between a leader and a manager. It's important because they're everyone, we're all people. Yeah. We're all the same. We're all built the same way. We may not come from the same places, the same backgrounds. We may not have the same leads and cringes, but we are all people. And... It's important to recognize and to acknowledge that this is a person. They might be having problems, but just to, even they even say just by smiling and waving at a, even a random stranger can brighten someone's day, and that could solve a problem for them. That maybe they, you know, the person walking, you know, in the park right now may feel really insignificant and down, but just to smile and say, "Hey, how's it going?" You know, and they're going to feel that much. They might feel that much better. Exactly. Do you think that? people who are working in the hospitality industry have a different mindset because as opposed to what I mentioned earlier, looking out for themselves, their priority is to make guests, make the diners feel at home. Do you think that that is, I, I feel that's something you can teach, but for those who are in those leadership positions, how does that passion develop? Because I think so many people, there's so many outside influences that are concerns. But as soon as you get into the kitchen, you kind of have to just be like, you know what? My priority is making sure that every single guest who walks through those doors is having the best possible experience. What is it that, and if I can rephrase it, what is it that keeps you motivated to put hospitality at the forefront? For me, it's the it's dishes, it's the food, it's the look on their face when they eat something. Maybe you know, getting that you want that reaction when they eat something that they it's so delicious that their eyes they just stop for a second and look down, and maybe their eyes roll in the back of their head, and they're just sitting there looking at this dish like, wow, what did I just experience? Those are the kind of things that when you actually experience it, which is what's great about open kitchens because you get to see that. Well, now I'm not an open kitchen; I have a little window to look through, so I'll watch through. Or I'll come out and talk to guests, especially when we do the omakases and things. That's our time to shine. That's when we're putting out all the cool stuff that may or may not be on the menu at the time. It may be something that's coming up on the next menu uh, for the specials and things. And that's for me, that's my drive. I'm, I wanna, I'm chasing that next new dish, that new thing, the new ingredient that's come out, or whatever the farms are growing. Or maybe I'm like, I want to take this particular ingredient and make it work with something that doesn't work, like octopus and Greek yogurt. 
-hmm. I had two, I had three or four very successful dishes that are on rotation now that will come back at certain points in the year with kabuki, and I found that miso and octopus works really well together, and miso and Greek yogurt works together. So finding that bridge to connect those to make those two things work, that's that's really cool in people, and it just kind of blows people's minds. They don't ever get, they don't see stuff like that. They don't think about that, and they're like, whoa, I never really thought that would actually work. Mm -hmm. With you being in various roles, you were also mentioning too, and even in our previous podcast, talking about your career change from going more front of house to more back of house. If someone may be, they have that grind, they have that determination, they have those goals in mind, but they're like, you know what, I don't know if this is necessarily the right environment for me. Any advice that you have, whether it be how long you should take it, uh, you should be in a role before saying, maybe this, this restaurant isn't for me, maybe this kitchen isn't, isn't for me, or maybe just saying, I need a little bit more time to figure out what it is that I want to do. Do you, do you have any advice on trying to kind of like identify that? Typically, there is a timeline for chefs that if you need to spend a minimum of a year at a place, at least one year, regardless of the place, and if you're not going to spend a year there, typically you don't want to put that on your resume. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look good. It's easier to explain a gap in time to say, hey, you know, I just took some time for myself, like, you know, that six months or whatever it was while you were looking for something else versus I only spent six months here, uh, six months here because of X, Y, and Z environment. But at least a minimum of a year. Like if you're looking to get into culinary, you should work in a restaurant. Maybe, especially if you have no experience as a dishwasher, and watch for a year to see what these guys are doing and see what it is and see what it's like from the very bottom to see if that's what you really, really want to do. Mm. And it's just like with any other industry, I think you, you just got to go find a place to try and try it out for a while and see if it is for you. Because this is very hard. The hospitality industry has always been hard. You're going to miss holidays. You're going to miss family events. You're going to miss life events. Like you may uh, somehow, like if you're married and you're gonna have kids, you may miss them being born. And those are things that things you have to really, really think about. And I think that's why we have the chef shortage happening, right? And that's been happening recently over the last couple of years because now with mental health being uh, more, people being more aware about it and chefs talking about it and things and people are seeing that and hearing about it and they're like, well, I don't wanna mess up my life. I don't wanna be like that. I don't want that to possibly happen to me. So I think we're getting le some less and less people interested, but I think too, we're also getting the ones we really want, mm -hmm. the ones you really, really want to do it that are going to put in the time, that are going to put in the effort, regardless, some regardless of situation, to make sure that they learn and find, you know, and do what they're passionate about. With that shortage, would you say that work-life balance has trumped passion? I think so now too. It depends on the person. Okay. Um, for me, uh, passion definitely trumped life balance at that point mm -hmm. and now it's swinging the other way I'm figuring out more and more how to balance that life with those things I like to do and shutting off and clocking out at the end of the day like really clocking out as soon as I punch my numbers and I hit out and grab my ticket and step out the door work stays at work I don't bring it home with me the only thing I bring home is my knives to sharpen and that's it like but that's another one of those calming things that I use I'll sit in front of the TV you know, at the end of the night, maybe have a beer, maybe have, you know, a cocktail, whatever it is, while I'm watching TV, sitting there sharpening my knives. It's my relaxing time, which is very important. And finding, especially in this industry, finding the relaxing time, like finding those things you love to do, whether it's gardening, whatever, you know, whatever you like to do, go ride your bike, walk your dog and things like that. Yeah. That, that's important. So work-life balance is definitely more important now and not just with this industry, with any industry. Yeah. Now I'm sure in going back to obviously our main topic here in mental health, you know, one of the things too about this industry is that 
you know, I'm sure people who work in the kitchen, they may find words like 401k and health benefits to be kind of foreign to them. Mm -hmm. And it is, it, you know, everything is costing more and more. You had mentioned rent, but the cost to go to the hospital costs more, mm -hmm. the cost to get groceries, the cost of gas goes up and down. Every, everything's alternating for the most part is heading in the up and up. When it comes to having a support system around you, is there anything that you're focusing on where maybe if someone isn't making that much and, and may not have the luxury of being able to go to a psychiatrist, are you doing anything, or are you noticing anything in the industry when it comes to support systems within the kitchen, people looking out for each other? Yeah, that's actually a really big thing. Um, there is a site, um, and they also have a group on Facebook that I'm a part of. It's called Chef With Issues. It's run by Kat Kinsman. She also runs the Communal Table podcast as well, and it's, I've been listening to her a lot. And she's dealt with a lot of these things, and she has set up that support group where if you are feeling any sort of way, you have a space to go to with other people who may feel the same way or they're there to listen and help you, that you can go and put your problem out there. It's a private group. Uh, has a lot of rules to go that goes along with it. I mean, even getting the even getting into the group, you have to answer quite a few questions of why you are there, what do you want to get out of this, are you going to be, you know, can you help people if possible and things. And it's it's a great space, and I'm looking to start another one for Orlando, you know, just for you know basically just for Orlando cooks right now and hospitality workers, and then you know for for everybody across the board in that industry because I think we we all, whether it's front of the house, back of the house, bar staff even dishwashers, you know, everybody, everyone's important in that aspect. Um, for me, just sitting down with my chefs right now once a week, you know, maybe before or after the shift, you know, we'll get a drink real quick, you know, get a really nice beer for them or get them a really nice cocktail and have a drink with them and sit down and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, but it's not like, hey, how are you doing? Like, oh, I'm fine. Yeah, I had a good day. And it's like, no, no, really, how are you doing? What's going on in your head right now? And things. And it's, it's a great learning process. I've gotten a lot closer, particularly with one of my cooks because of it and now I understand more what's going on with him so I can now see when he's working I can see just by the movements of his knife mm -hmm. uh, if how he's feeling wow. if his knife work looks a little weird or if I notice he's going a little slow a slower than I don't say slower than normal because he's pretty quick but just going slow and the cuts you know just feels really like lethargic and things then I can you know, go grab, you know, pull him into the walk-in real quick and be like, hey, what's up, you know, when we can, we have a, you know, that private, that walk-in is that private space for cooks. That's our scream room. That's our therapy room. Um, or some of us go all the way into the freezer so that way nobody hears it because sometimes they're not as insulated as they should be so they can hear you screaming, um, which I've done before plenty of times, running into another job where we would have, just, you know, rough service. We're short on people. I would, you know, knock out all my tickets and run into the freezer, a couple knuckle marks into the wall and scream real quick and I'm good. Mm -hmm. um, but having those support systems, someone to talk to, I think is the biggest thing. Yeah. But just even be able to recognize it. Um, and like he even told me one of the hardest things is recognizing that you do have a problem and acknowledging it. But once you do, it kind of opens up your world a little bit more. And now you can notice those things. And I, and I see from the servers and things. So I can tell a little bit better now who's having a little bit of an off day. And maybe they might need a talk. They might need a hug. And even in the, uh, the videos... And in those podcasts, it even says some people might need, you know, a foot in the ass. They might need, a, you know, they might need to be cussed out. They might just need a hug or just someone to talk to. Everyone is different and they all react differently and different things help them out. Anything you're doing or you're seeing when it comes to recognition, because I feel that's another thing that's motivating is just whether it's, you know, just pulling them aside and, and thanking them. You know, I, I've worked in industries where people can give like cards and literally just say, and they've written it out. And some people just like that because they can, they can hold on to it and it yeah. holds value. Anything you're doing for recognition? I think the card thing's a really good idea. 
Yeah, I think one of the best lessons I ever learned was working for corporate when yeah. I first got out of culinary school uh, with a st uh, steakhouse group in Orlando. And before we leave, one of their things in their culture was before we left, not just saying hi to everybody, but before we left, we had to go to every individual person uh, before we left to say goodbye and thank you. I thought that was great. That has stuck with me. So every time I say goodbye, I'm clocking out and, you know, I yell, you know, goodbye, guys. Thank you very much. I'll see you guys, you know, on the next shift, whenever they work. I'm working this day. I'll see you if you're there. Mm -hmm. um, I always, you know, even when we're getting rocked and we just got, had a really bad, even if the service wasn't as good as it should have been, you know, it's like, good job, guys. Thank you, you know, for pushing and doing what you do. You know, we can't do this without each other. It, it's a very team-oriented environment. The cards, are, that's actually a really good idea. Maybe we should start that. Mental note. <laughs> yeah, mental note for that one. But just recognize, just saying thank you and saying hi to them and being really, you know, sincere when you do it. Because just some people, it's like, hey, hey, what's up? You know, one of the uh, um, the, the other guy, my cook, we have, we both love watching the show Letterkenny. So it's like we walk in, you know, it's like, how are you now? Good, and you? You yeah, fine, you know? Just, you know, we, we sit there and rock quotes from the show all night long. Mm -hmm. And I know that keeps him in a good mood. Good. So we do things like that and... Uh, I buy a lot of cookbooks too, so I like I know my pastry chef. I just bought the milk book uh, from the Mamafuku Milk Bar by Christina Tosi, and I showed her a picture, and she's like, "Oh my god, I really want to read that." And I'm like, "Here you go." And then I have another book I'm going to give to her uh, from the Bouchon Bakery. I happen to have a second copy of that I'm going to give to her tomorrow and uh, for her to keep because I already have a second copy. So, but I think giving a maybe giving a gift every once in a while makes them feel, especially if it's something that will help for their development, and I'm all about that. I've given cooks plenty of things. I've given away, I might have had an extra knife or an extra set of tweezers or an extra set of chef coats that don't fit me anymore, mm -hmm. or, I mean, anything. They, they like that. I've given away, like, knife bags. Like, you just collect things as a chef. You might have five or six knife bags. You might have <laughs> tons of knives. Like, we have a picture actually up on, I think it might be, it was up on Kabuki's Instagram, but all of our sushi chefs laid out their knives, and we have two six-foot tables plus a, a one or two-foot sink in between, and they had knives covering across the entire thing. Wow. You know, and it's amazing because you look at how much money is spent in there, and some of those knives were over $1,000 a piece. And also probably the stories affiliated with them, too. Oh, there is, yeah. They all have stories. My knives all have stories. <laughs> one of the things we were talking about off the air is uh, obviously what's been going on in the, in the past decade or so is that implementation of our uh, beloved Yelp and social yeah. media. And the impact that has, because uh, for those who are outside the industry, there's really nothing probably other than maybe the Better Business Bureau, which, let's be honest, not a lot of people are keeping track of. Yeah. Um, but on Yelp, that's oftentimes how people are determining whether or not they want to go to a restaurant. Maybe because one is 4.3, but the other one is 4.1. It's not like that can have an impact on everyone from ownership to the uh, to the executive chef to oh, yeah. you being in the chef to cuisine talk to me about that like what have you seen what's been the impacts with Yelp yeah we're in the uh, era of the uh, the elite Yelpers the ones everyone who is a critic yeah that's yeah. what I say um, I know with those when I see those bad reviews and I look at my reviews for both restaurants I want to see what's going on anything we can fix whatever has happened we have a lot of great reviews I think we have a four and a half on both of them awesome we were holding a five for a long time and then you can't always be perfect Everyone has an expectation, you know, we get people who come in with those expectations and sometimes we blow them away and some people are kind of like, eh, you know, it's like another sushi restaurant, you, know, you can throw a rock and you can find bluefin in any other restaurant as well. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you're not going to find the bluefin comma that we grill or that we take out and make hand rolls out of, you know, that's, that's like a piece of A5 steak right there. It's an amazing cut. It's actually one of my favorite parts of the bluefin. Um, when I do get the chance to eat bluefin, it's not one of my things that's on my list of things that eats an endangered species. And it's not something that we're going to... It's going to be around forever, even with the farming techniques. Mm -hmm. um, 
But yeah, so anybody when they write the reviews and things, I see the bad reviews, and if I see a really bad one, I'll go and look at their history and see who they wrote reviews on and wh what type. So you get the people on there who just write bad reviews for everybody. They one-star everyone for whatever reason. I read things. Or you get the people who are like, great food, great service, had a good time, uh, parking sucked, two stars. Like, really? I mean, even South Park did an episode on that, and that was hilarious. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that episode made me laugh so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I don't really pay too much attention to Yelp. I mean, for where I'm at in Orlando, TripAdvisor is the really big one. Because that's, that's the international one. That's where all your international guests and the hotels refer to. And we've got, you know, reviews on there as well and things. That, that's, a, that's a really good one. Because mm -hmm. you get a lot more, I think, honest reviews on there. And then Yelp, you know, somebody will come in and be like, oh, they have all the same typical stuff as everybody else. This was this, that was that. And, you know, three stars. Mm -hmm. Or they could have a great experience and still write a three-star review because of parking or they had to wait 10 minutes because we were busy to get a table or something like that. And that happens, and it's unfortunate because that happens to a lot of restaurants, and that closes a lot of restaurants too because somebody wrote a couple, they had a, a bad run of like maybe three or four really bad reviews that dropped their score, and people don't want to come in. They're like, I don't want to waste my money on something that's like just like a three and a half star. Mm -hmm. But I always give, I read the reviews before I go to places, but I always give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe these people just had a bad day or maybe these people themselves are just jerks. Yeah. We still go. I found plenty of places that were three and a half stars that were great. But with social media and things, people are posting things in pictures, uh, these um, food influencers, you know, the social media influencers. And I know a couple and I'm very good friends with them and they're awesome. But then you have some of them that expect things. You know, they might want something for free. Like, well, I have, you know, 20,000 followers. It's like, yeah, but there's seven-year-olds with 50,000 followers or more. Like, because they're just making videos of them doing whatever they're doing, you know. And so, but it, it's cool because they just, you get to see, I think the social media thing has been a very big good thing too because you're seeing now, we're seeing more things we didn't see before. Everyone's posting all the food and people are seeing it and they go, oh, I want to go try that and yeah. things. And I think I, I see better, I think the reviews actually, I think are better. You find better reviews on the social media platforms now because you see the pictures that go along with it because people may not take pictures and take the time to post it on Yelp and things, but they'll definitely post it on Instagram or Facebook inside of like all the local groups and things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, social media can be very helpful. It can be very hurtful. I think it just depends on how you take it. You, know, yeah. you got to take everything with a grain of salt. I'd be interested to see how social media moves in the next 10 years because I'm sure it's going to change. I'm sure there's going to be something new for the restaurants as well. When it comes to that feedback, if you are dealing with something negative, are you sharing that with the team? Are you more mm -hmm. so intrinsically thinking it? You are sharing it with Most, us? I do, and especially if it's something that involves you know, my kitchen and things. Uh, especially if it's one of my dishes or if it's, you know, one of my pastry chef's desserts or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we always have to share that information with each other so we can figure out, okay, what went wrong? What happened that night? Did we run out of something? Or maybe with because, you know, we we're short-staffed and you guys were just slammed up and it just maybe you just made a misstep. You forgot to taste something yeah. or something like that. You know, so we, we talk about it and, it and it's very important. And there's a lot of places like my, I know my boss reads them all the time. Yeah. And he even replies from time to time depending on the review. I have a coworker, and obviously I'm outside of the industry, but she cannot take feedback to save her life, and uh, we've tried to help her every way we can. That's yeah, unfortunate. Do you think that those in the hospitality industry might be a little bit more receptive to feedback? At least in recent times, we, we were also talking off the air of some that got reviews and just drove them crazy. Yeah, there are there are some. I know when I first started creating dishes as a chef, I mean, getting that criticism was very, very rough because you put a lot and a lot of time into these things. You yeah. put a lot of effort, and you just want people to like it. You know, and then you get that feedback from the server. They're just like, no, I don't like it. And, you know, or those, you know, and it just kind of crushes you. And then you kind of pull 
the whole macho mentality is like, well, what do you know? You just you just tell them what to buy, basically. Yeah. And I've gotten better and better about that, realistically, over the last couple of years, uh, realizing that it's just food, you know. And if I do, and, I just put, and I've put more time and more effort into my dishes now, where I'm putting less and less on the plate as far as components go, so that everything really has to be that good. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I want things, people, like, I want the idea to be simple, but I want obviously the flavors and everything to be complex people to go about this is really complex but it's literally only three things on the plate um but yeah i think some people are very it's very rough with criticism you have uh chefs um that you know they get they'll get a review you know that they might be losing a michelin star and things and that weighs heavily on people those they tried so hard to obtain those and i couldn't even imagine the stress those guys are going through when they see something like that and they're like well it's all over now i'm not gonna no one's gonna know me anymore I, I can't run my restaurant. No one's going to come and pay anymore. Um, there were chefs like that, and unfortunately, we've lost a lot of, sh- we've lost a lot of chefs like that mm-hmm. from that type of pressure, or even over articles that didn't even say they lost it, that they might be losing it, and then they have a chance to fix it at that point before that could even happen. Yeah. Uh, the movie Burnt was a great example of that. Uh, Bradley Cooper's character, you know, pushing so hard. He was uh, originally a two-star Michelin chef, and he ended up burning himself up to the point where he was, you know, he had a really bad drug problem and things where he left and he sabotaged his old sous chef's restaurant and then moved to America, and it opens up with him, you know, he was in Louisiana, mm-hmm. you know, basically paying penance for what he did by shucking a million oysters. Could you imagine trying to count and putting yourself to that through that kind of thing to get yourself caught back up? And then he was clean and sober, and then when he had the chance to get the stars, to get that third star, uh, they thought it was ruined, then luckily then he went out on a big drinking bender and things and wanted to end himself he almost suffocated himself in the movie luckily the chef friend he was with you know was like no we need you don't do that and i think that's that's another movie i think people need to watch to see that pressure what's going on in that kitchen there's just there's so many things that happen in there uh, when it has to come to mental health the physical uh, physical abuse mental abuse the verbal abuse and things that happens uh, sometimes in those kitchens but that's the price that you're paying you know Everybody's chasing perfection, but yep. at what cost? What price are you willing to pay for all of that? Have you seen that documentary about Gordon Ramsay before he got all PC? Like, back when he was trying to get, I think it was his third Michelin star? I haven't. I've read his book, though, about his life. I mean, he's very he is very into helping people who have addiction problems. He had yeah. a brother who had an addiction problem, a drug addiction problem and things. Mm-hmm. You'll have to... Uh, Send me that so I can watch that. I can, I can send it. But it was, I think it's on YouTube too. So if anyone's listening, you can just check it out there. But um, I know that his initial, like his that vibe that people got when they were watching him on TV or whatnot was like, he was the hard ass. He was the one where it was like, how can anyone work for this guy? Mm-hmm. But you could also see a lot of passion through what he was that he was doing. He wanted to be the best. Mm-hmm. He, I think he wanted his team to be the best too. And it will... It, no two people are going to be alike in the way that they're going to handle that. And mm-hmm. with him, I think it is adding that pressure, but it's like, listen, if you're going to work for me, like these are my standards, this is what I have to do. When you're seeing that sort of stuff, or if you have may have dealt with something, um, how have you dealt with that? If someone may or would deal with something like that, where someone might be a little bit more aggressive, but deep down inside, if you're able to say, listen, I'm going through the following, you find out he can support you, but like, do you think you could work for someone in that kind of environment in today's day and age? I think it's a little harder to do that, but I mean, I would, I would personally, I would love to work for Gordon Ramsay. You watch that he is a, you know, not a lot of people know or see that he's humanitarian. You've seen on shows where, you know, he's had contestants like on Hell's Kitchen that she uh, ended up losing Hell's Kitchen, 
and getting kicked off, but he paid for her to go to the CIA to go to culinary school because he saw the passion. He saw that she could do it. So he's like, I'm going to pay for you to go to school. His other show, uh, his, his other Kitchen Nightmares show in the UK is completely different from what we show here. Uh, and he's helping people. He finds chefs. These chefs have problems, not just with their food, but they have like problems with their family, addiction problems and things, and he's helping them. Yeah. You know, and I... I would love to work for someone like him because I know what his standards are up front and I'm sure that whoever works for him, the chefs and everything say, hey, these are the standards, you know, you need to abide by these and if you don't, here's what's going to happen and if, I, and if I don't abide by them and I do get a, you know, a tongue lashing and things and I do get yelled at, then you deserve it at that point. Mm-hmm. But there's a fine line between what you deserve based off what you did and just being completely, you know, berated and things. You do, nobody wants that. How would you separate in situations like that or someone you're working for maybe you can allude to anything you've done in the past but how would you separate anger with passion it's really hard to separate the two because at some points they both look almost the same you can be very passionate about something that you want people to love what you're doing and things but it could also drive you completely completely mad Uh, and then when you get angry over a certain situation you have to kind of look back and remember um, how I, I even I tell everybody too how I handle things is whatever happens in that moment it's once we resolve we resolved it's resolved right then and there it's over it's done two seconds later I've already forgotten about it and moved on to the next thing mm-hmm. that's something you have to kind of train yourself on yeah I've had to train myself on that I remember to not let things uh, linger not let things go over not let them you know stew you don't want to stew on anything so like I've been t- talking to my staff you know recently like hey if anything happens if I you know if say you feel that Maybe I accidentally talked to you in a way that you felt like, you know, I should not have. Maybe I just lost it in the heat of the moment because it's like we're super busy, we're slammed, and it was just something. Because a lot of the time these problems are over really, really small things. Like none of them are very significant, but in the moment it seems significant because it might slow you down or it might do this or that. You know, like come and talk to me at the end of the shift. I always want to make sure that I keep that open line of communication with everybody that you can come to me afterwards. And if you don't feel comfortable, get a third person involved and let's get it done and talked about because I don't want it to boil over. I don't want to create an environment or have an environment or even work in an environment where people don't want to show up mm-hmm. to work. And that's a problem with a lot of places is you'll get into that. They'll get into that and they won't want to show up the next day because they got yelled at the day before from something, whether uh, it was something that was their fault or not. But I also think you need to separate, too, that you have to understand that when you go to work in those higher-end places or you come to work for, you know, places like if you had to come to work for me and things, that we do have a high set of standards and things, but we also put them out at the very front that, hey, these are the set of standards, this is what you need to follow, and if you don't, we're going to course correct, you know, especially when you do things like, you know, if you mess up, we're going to come down on you, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to you know, berate you or yell at you in front of people or anything like that because that's, one, that's completely wrong because it just, it's embarrassing for you. It's embarrassing for the person doing it. It's embarrassing for the person that's happening to. And it creates a really bad vibe and sets a really bad example for what is accept, what is uh, acceptable behavior as, as a leader, or as a manager, or as a person in mm-hmm. general. You know, so we'll, we talk about it in private, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, setting that example is key. Anything else you want to talk about from this? Um... Just a couple, um, so a couple chefs. Um, we talked about Bourdain earlier, and that was huge. The, it even impacted people who were not in the industry, as you were saying for yourself, and people who didn't even know him. Uh, you look, uh, Matt Jennings, I know him and Matt Jennings were friends. Matt Jennings is a chef up in Boston. I look up to him. I got to cook for him when I worked for Prada, which was great. And I didn't know who he was, and that's when I, they're like, oh, that's Matt Jennings and things. I'm like, who's that? And they're like, dude, go, go look him up real quick. And I did, and I'm like, holy cow. So we cooked for the guy, and that guy has done so many amazing things. I mean, he lost... An entire person in weight 
So now he's all about the healthy life. You know, I think he's involved with Chef Cycle as well, which is great, which I'm getting into to go do the ride in June with them. Mm -hmm. um, but he also, he put out a big thing that's when, after Bourdain's death, and we had this big explosion of suicide uh, awareness and prevention and things. And they have Bourdain Day uh, that helps honor him and does a service for everyone else. And so we have a couple, there's a couple of chefs that kind of rocked my world a little bit. Um, uh, Benoit Vollier in Switzerland, this guy was only 44 years old, three-star Michelin chef on the eve that he was about to be named, you know, best, he was the best chef in the world, the best restaurant, all those things. Uh, the pressure, he also, there was a couple other outside factors that happened as well with his restaurant, but he hung himself, 44 years old, under the, you know, cracked under pressure, and that's unfortunate. Maybe if he had somebody to say, you know, hey, how are you feeling, or to say, hey, I'm here for you, might be a different story. Mm -hmm. um, Hamaro Kantu, he was the owner of Moto in Chicago, um, 38 years old. This was back in 2015, I think. Um, he had he had no previous uh, mental health issues or anything. So this was really sudden that this happened. This kind of this rocked a lot of people because it said, you know, if this happened to somebody who didn't have these kinds of issues, you know, how has it got to feel for people who who might mm -hmm. and who do? Um, he had a brewery that he was redoing. Another place he was about to open. He hung himself in there and his. You know his partner and his uh, somebody else found him, but he was also there was something going on with an investor that was never proven. It was eventually dropped. You know it was the pressures from that had gotten to him. It was a money problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I noticed the talking, uh, listening to a lot of podcasts about Bourdain, as they were saying, you know Bourdain. It was like with Robin Williams, you have one of the funniest people on the planet, the most beloved person, but he was also the most loneliest person. Yeah. You know, and it's been five years now. He was what 2014, and I think it was. Four, five, 2014 or 2015 um, and even Bourdain he got to travel and eat all these places eat everywhere around the world and meet all these people hang out with all these chefs and you would think oh man that's an amazing life how can that guy be upset ever and things hmm. but there is it just shows to show you it doesn't matter how good your life is or what's going on uh, if you don't if no one knows what's going on in your head no one knows and yeah some people would like to say I like to travel 300 days out of the year but mm -hmm. I can also say there's a lot of people too would be like no and I know I know he has I know he has a daughter I know he had I think it was a wife at that time and um, you know having those outside influences as well I know can have impact on people and like you mentioned too, that career shift as well people are like you know what if I want to settle outside of my workplace I think that is going to have an impact significantly mm -hmm. on my workplace so Anything else? I really think in order to have what's worked for me about having that healthier lifestyle and things, not just getting up and going to the gym. I've been doing kickboxing and boxing, which has been huge. I can get a lot of stress out like that. It's a mm -hmm. huge, it's a good workout and things, and I love it. Um, setting limitations on myself for when I can think about work and when I, sh you know, talk about it and things. When my day is off, when I'm it's my day off, you can't really get a hold of me. I put my phone away. I don't really look at it. There's realistically only a few people that can realistically get a hold of me on that day. But I use that day for myself because I got to clean the house. I've got to do laundry. I got, you know, hang out with my dogs. I got yard work. I got things to do. You know, Monday's my favorite day. It's always my day off. It's pizza Monday. I get pizza every single Monday. It's there one of go. my comfort foods. I love it. Where are you going today? Uh, I actually got pizza earlier today uh, for lunch. I had uh, Papa John's delivered today. I was <laughs> hanging out with someone, and she was like, oh, I want pizza. I get Papa John's. I'm like, okay, what do you want? And got pizzas and things. And it's awesome. So I think setting those limitations uh, and setting those uh, boundaries, basically, on work is work, 
my home is my life. You know, I'm trying to set my house up kind of like that kind of Zen feel, looking at colors to paint the walls mm -hmm. for more relaxing colors to make it feel more relaxed and things and make it feel a little more open. Um, you know, you have like, I have like, a, what are those, those little, um, you drop the oil into them. I'm trying to forget the name the of them. The diffusers? Diffusers, yeah. yeah. And I like, I love the smell of lavender and things. So I run that in my house all the time and mm -hmm. it's nice relaxing smell and things and just finding places to relax, sitting outside and things. So yeah, definitely setting boundaries, I think, is what's helped me the most and thinking about work. And I cook at home a lot, too, so I'm always prepping. I'm always doing meal prep. I just got one of those new uh, uh, Instapot pressure cookers. It's got the little R2-T2 version for things. Christmas. I'm going to start playing around with that thing tonight. I'm yeah. excited. And uh, and you, when, you, when you do work in this you do have a true love for cooking. Everyone's like, well, how do you cook at home? And things like, I love cooking. I do it, I do it for work, you know. I cook every day at work. I'm on my line. I'm not standing on the expo line. I'm with my chefs you know, working their station on their day off or working in between them on the weekends, you know, and, and I always like, I love cooking at home because I get to do the things that I don't do at work. Work is like a whole different thing. Like we're doing these fancy dishes. I have obviously a, a, a different type of budget and at home it's just cooking vegetables and meats, you know, very simple, just throwing salt on stuff and roasting them and eating some grains and things, you know, just enjoying that part of cooking, yep. setting up the fire pit outside and setting the grill inside there and cooking over an open fire, practicing those skills and things. That's, that's where the love is, and that's where the fun is for me. Awesome. That's uh, but that's that's pretty much it. I mean, this is this is a very very, very big topic. There's a lot of different small things that you can go into, but I think the biggest thing is making the you know people more aware that it is okay to say, hey, I don't, I don't, I'm not in a comfortable state right now. I'm not in a good space. You know, can you help me? Or just going up to somebody that looks like they're down in your work or in your life to say, hey. Are you okay? Yeah. Or getting the help that you need. Like I said, for me, realizing I had a problem, I didn't even realize this until recently when I started realistically doing the research. Like, I knew I didn't feel good, but I really didn't want to, I guess, acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. Like I said earlier, that only 50% of people really acknowledge it. The other half, you know, you don't want to look weak and things. But when I finally did, it's like, okay, I do feel like that a little bit yeah. and things. But having those healthy coping mechanisms and things is what really, really helps. And having now setting up a support group and having that support for everybody, that they, uh, I know that they know that I support them and now they support me. So now I have people when they come up to me are really sincere, like, Chef, how are you doing today? You know, how is your day going and things? And that, and that brightens your day. That can help because if you are having a bad day and you need to get something out, you can get it out right then and there. Yep. Or you can write it on a piece of paper, you know, like I made that reference earlier from my one of my chefs, you know, hey, like write it down. It's like that thing out of Harry Potter where he puts the wand to his head and puts, you know, takes the memory on, sticks it in the little pool and he we can also, go back to it later. Yeah, because we were also talking about before this also was not necessarily ha comparing your problems with someone else's. Because Never do they, that. they may have a significant impact on you, but not on someone else, mm -hmm. you know. No, and it doesn't matter. And everybody listen, it doesn't matter. Your problems are very big or very small. It all matters. Yep. You know, you matter. Like we said, um, and I'll just go back and reiterate the uh, the helplines from earlier, the National Suicide Hotline, if you need help, you need to get to a better space and you want to talk to somebody, you know, verbally, uh, the number is 1-800-273-8255, or you can text the Crisis Hotline at 741-741. You have trained counselors there. There's going to be someone there to help you, and they will talk to you as long as needed to get you into a safer place wherever you need to be. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I did forget to put this in the intro, but I did reference, and Mike did as well, some links and some podcasts and video and 
websites that were really good resources as part of our research, but also as Mike had stated, he utilizes for him and his team. If anyone wants to know those links or wants, you know, a copy of them, just shoot me a direct message on Instagram at interested eater. And other than that, guys, I do hope you have a great start to 2020. Have a great rest of the week and I'll see you guys next week.